Healthcare is the only industry in which we dump all of the components in front of consumers and then ask them to organize the supply chain themselves. So our approach is to take that burden back upon ourselves and provide a seamless experience for both consumers and purchasers of healthcare. That's Neam Gandhi, our guest today on the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. Neam's here to explain what makes a payer-provider partnership successful to ensure consumers have a seamless healthcare experience. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. To learn more, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and subscribe on iTunes. Hello, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Sam Glick, partner in the Health and Life Sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with uh, my friend and former colleague, Neam Gandhi. Neam's the Executive Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer at Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. Um, he used to work, as I said, with us here at Oliver Wyman, um, and has spent a lot of time thinking about uh, not just population health, but the health system in transformation more generally. Neam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. So uh, let's start. So you're, you're almost at the two-year anniversary at Mount Sinai of a partnership with Oscar Health. Um, and Oscar has been in the news recently, um, most notably for getting a pretty big investment from Alphabet, Google's parent company. How's that going? What are you learning? So, you know, it's, uh, it's actually, it's going really well. And uh, it's been really interesting for us. You know, we have pretty deep relationships with, with a number of health plans, uh, not just in terms of, you know, kind of the basics of you know, moving to value-based contracting, but but actually around co-branded products, uh, various kind of joint venture sort of ideas, uh, you know, programs that we've put out. One of the things that's a little bit unique about the, the partnership with Oscar um, is that, you know, we did start it uh, about two years ago. Uh, so that's, you know, so we've had a little bit of runway behind us in terms of, uh, you know, working through some of uh, some of the things that were just ideas that Mario and I were tossing around really about three years ago when we first met uh, and actually making them happen. Um, the other thing that's been interesting is, uh, you know, they're, they're different because they don't have some of the same legacy infrastructure that, uh, that most health plans do. Uh, and uh, often there's a, there's a tendency when a provider organization has their legacy infrastructure and a health plan has their legacy infrastructure to kind of think that the legacy way we always did things, but incrementally better is the right way to do it. Um, and we've had a lot of fun with Oscar uh, peeling back areas where we can say, you know what, just because traditionally one organization does X or Y doesn't mean we have to do it this way, the same way in, in this arrangement. So as an example, you know, we've, we've been running a health center with them together for the past uh, couple of years. And uh, to be honest, they, they run most of it. They run the day-to-day operations. It's our clinical team. Uh, it's our medical oversight. Uh, but the, you know, the person at the front desk who is also very knowledgeable about your benefits because they have access to all the Oscar systems uh, is an Oscar employee. Um, and, it, you know, just as we set up that, uh, as we set up that clinic as an example, starting from bare bones from nothing and saying, all right, these are the jobs to be done. If we really want an outstanding, uh, if we really want an ex- outstanding experience that bridges from clinical care delivery to coverage, to, you know, health and wellness, to everything else, uh, you know, there's a yoga studio in there, you know, whatever. Um, let's, 
let's just identify those jobs to be done. Who's best positioned to do them? Uh, some things are going to be, you know, we feel like neither of us are and we need to hire in some new competencies. And so we've just had fun experimenting with those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, the results are positive. The medical loss ratio is trending in a great direction. Uh, consumer satisfaction is really high with the product overall. And, um, you know, which is, which has been a testament to the partnership, but also, um, you know, I think the having the faith that as we move to that narrow network, these were people who were used to being in a broad network, uh, because that's what Oscar had before we launched this partnership. Um, and, you know, they had pretty high retention and, and very high member satisfaction as, as we made the transition. So it's interesting. Congratulations, by the way. It's, uh, it's, it's great to hear about the success. I, I imagine for some of the other healthcare providers who are listening, um, the idea that in this kind of partnership, you would actually have the health insurer um, do most of your clinic operations uh, would surprise them. Um, and, you know, often what we talk about is that these partnerships are about, well, you know, the provider brings care delivery expertise and local relationships and the payer brings sales and distribution and administration. And it sounds like you're doing something that's, that's far more collaborative and, and pretty different than that typical view. Uh, how did you end up here? So you know, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I think one of the keys to the success of it, and we've, we've now actually replicated this with, um, with Bright Health as well, who we're, who we're launching with, we're launching a Medicare Advantage product with them in, uh, in January, um, is coming to it at the most, and I feel like ha having that relationship at the most senior levels and being able to set aside the organizational ego in you know, conversations one, two, and three sets the groundwork for conversations, you know, four and beyond to be done differently. And so, you know, in, in the Oscar example, you know, Mario and I were talking about the product that we wanted to do together. And, you know, we said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could actually make this come to life physically? That was the phrase first. And yeah. then it was like, well, you know, so we could do a health center. We could run it together. And then he said, yeah, you know, we, we have these technology opportunities. We could, we could put this, this, and this. And I said, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if the person at the front desk could do this? And, um, you know, as, as we started brainstorming from there, more kind of abstracting it from our own organizations, uh, we came up with what we think is a pretty innovative model. And, and you know, we, we do bring the care delivery expertise. You know, the, the clinical uh, staff there are credentialed Mount Sinai providers. And, you know, that's, that's the, they're under our quality supervision. And that's the way we, you know, ensure the, the quality uh, of the care that we want to, uh, but you know, are are we differentiated at um, you know how to do patient flow from the front desk into the you know into the exam room? No, um, is there anything that's differentiated there? Really, <laughs> you know, in a normal healthcare practice, actually, yeah, it's probably differentiated in that in a typical healthcare practice, including most of ours, it's not that great. Um, so you know, why should we have any ego that we have to do that, that piece of clinic operations, if we can, you know, collaboratively design something else and say, you know what, yeah, the practice manager is, is an Oscar employee, and they're gonna, they're gonna manage the day to day operations. Um, so I think starting with uh, starting senior enough in the organization, and starting theoretical enough, uh, and continuing those threads through we found was really important. And again, you know, having now replicated that with bright, uh, where we're doing some, you know, some interesting things about seniors-focused health centers, because uh, you know, it'd be a Medicare Advantage product. Uh, thinking about how we market together, thinking about uh, how we go after the uh, naturally occurring retirement communities in New York, 
uh, and work with them who we have deep relationships with. But, you know, Bright has a lot of great seniors experience, um, you know, more generally in terms of uh, individuals that are in communities of seniors, uh, you know, just being able to lay out everybody's assets on the table and say, all right, let's, let's make one plus one equal something more than two. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and what about the, the challenges of it? I, I think we find that, you know, organizations like yours get together with health plans and they have a great vision and they have great ambition. And then, you know, where the egos really get in the way is how are we going to divvy up the money? How are we going to govern the thing? Who's on the board? Who's really in charge? How have you worked through all of that? So uh, this is, uh, this is kind of Neam Gandhi opinion here, not necessarily, well, I guess it is Mount Sinai opinion too. Um, we'll take either one. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, uh, a lot of people get stuck in, uh, in form over function. And so I'm, you know, personally, and we, we do have true joint ventures in other areas. We don't have any joint venture health plans. I'm personally not a big fan of joint ventures. That's a lot of legal paperwork. You have to have a board, you have to have, you know, employees of the joint venture or not your leasing employees. I mean, you can do pretty much anything you want contractually. Um, you can create the same amount of stickiness. Uh, you can do all of those things without actually creating a new entity and going through things that end up being emotional decisions rather than practical decisions. And if you do it contractually, um, then yeah, I'm not saying you get rid of all the emotional decisions, but it makes it easier to make practical decisions because you don't get up to things like, you know, the board of the organization saying, well, why, you know, why are we the 51% or the 49% rather than the other? Um, because, you know, you handle it through contractual agreements rather than, uh, rather than through over-engineering the governance. So I think one of the things, one of the recommendations I have, you know, and kind of how we've done this at least is uh, simple is better often. Uh, and don't, don't try to do anything structurally that you can do contractually instead. Um, and then, you know, I think one of the other tailwinds we've had, um, in, in some of our relationships, especially is that, um, when we're working with a new market entrant, whose entire business model is, uh, dedicated provider partnerships or narrow networks, like we have with Oscar or Bright, um, you don't have the other side of the equation, which is, you know, is this competing business or cannibalizing business of some other part of my business from the payer side? Right. Uh, and when we've had successful partnerships with uh, larger insurers who have broad network offerings, uh, we found that we can have those successful partnerships um, if we lay that out from day one. So, you know, we have a, we have a really great partnership with United around, uh, you know, kind of a targeted network offering uh, in the large group market. And it makes perfect sense to work with somebody like them for that. And you can sell the PPO side by side with the narrower network, the, the ACO uh, product or Nexus ACO product. Um, and that can be very compelling for a large employer in the way that, a you know, a small insurer can't really sell in. Um, but we had very explicit conversations with, with United leadership early on saying, you know, we, we don't want to do this if this is a side project for you. If you're doing this as a favor to us, we're not interested. Yeah, you got to wake up every day and think about this thing. Yeah, exactly. And there are people on their team who wake up every day thinking about this, all the way up through the top of the organization in terms of, you know, how do we make Nexus broadly? I mean, the, the fact that they launched it in so many markets gives us, you know, is, we actually think is a benefit. Um, we don't want to be, you know, the first or the only market. 
Um, you know, we, we were a second year market for them in that offering. Uh, and they had learned some things in their other markets in the first year. And they brought that to the table. But it's very clear that it's a priority for them that they view the kind of healthcare offering of the future as being, you can choose this. Uh, as, as an employer, you know, we would like for you to offer both so that your employee can choose this or choose the broad network. And, you know, it, it shows up in the little things. It shows up when, you know, when you're having uh, a conversation about the fee-for-service contract renewal, which is, you know, our relationship with a large insurer typically runs in the hundreds of millions or close to a billion dollar of, you know, dollars that flow back and forth uh, annually. Uh, when you're having that conversation and something about the narrow network partnership comes up in the context of that, you know that it's on their mind um, and you know that it's important to them, which, you know, if it's a science project, it's a science project. Um, and, and I don't think science projects succeed when you're trying to transform healthcare. Now, and your, your point uh, at the beginning about how you structure these kinds of initiatives is interesting. I think the you know, conventional wisdom about joint ventures has always been um, you, you put them in place specifically because there's no such thing as perfect contracting and you don't want to have a negotiation over every detail. But I think it's an interesting take that sometimes when you do that, you, you end up raising the stakes in a way that's um, perhaps not actually helpful to what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we've done contracts, especially around some of what we do with, uh, with health plan partnerships or even some of our employer partnerships where, uh, we knew that we can figure out all the details and we would say, you know, Hey, a joint operating committee is going to decide these five things after the thing's up and running. I mean, and you can, again, you can do all of that in a contractual manner. You can, you can punt, you can punt to your future self. Uh, you can, right. you can punt to a body appointed by both organizations. Uh, you can punt to a third party. Uh, that's, that's all possible. Um, and I, I just, I prefer doing things that way. Maybe I've just been coached into that too much by my lawyers who, uh, who, who prefer, the, the contractual model to the structural model. But I mean, and, and it's not like Mount Sinai is averse to this. We have, you know, 70 some odd legal entities within our organization. We have a bunch of joint ventures. We've spun out companies. We've spun in companies. Uh, but on, in this space, um, we're just finding that we can be more nimble, actually, if we, uh, if we allow for things to not be over-engineered from a governance standpoint. Well, don't listen to your lawyers too much. They won't let you do podcasts anymore. Uh. <laughs> So let me Liam, uh, zoom out a little bit, if I may. You know, we've talked about this one particular initiative with with Oscar. You alluded to what you're you're doing with Bright, for example. But um, how does this all fit in to what you're trying to achieve in terms of population health more broadly at Mount Sinai? That's a that's a great question. Um, so I, I think the the general thesis we have at Mount Sinai is that uh, purchasers, whether they be the government or an employer or an increasingly an individual, you know, who's either buying their insurance, who has to cover a fair amount of their deductible. Um, purchasers do not get value for the dollars they spend. Um, and I don't think that's a controversial thing necessarily. Um, I think there are unfortunately a lot of delivery systems that wouldn't necessarily admit that to themselves. Um, but we believe that there isn't value for the healthcare dollar. So if we start from that and we say, you know, how are we defining value as you know, some mix of outcomes where outcomes is broadly, you know, quality, experience, everything, you know, divided by the cost that you're paying for it, um, then we really need to improve everything across outcomes and we need to, you know, reduce the amount of dollars consumed by it. Again, not, not a controversial topic. Um, 
I think as, as we look at success in, in population health more broadly, uh, some of it, yes, is performance and risk contracts. Some of it is taking the value that we create and commercializing that and turning that into, you know, into additional share. Healthcare is one of the few industries that's in its traditional model uh, since it's you know, B to B to B to C, basically, uh, almost devoid of any uh, sense of supply and demand and the laws of economic supplying. And so um, I like where the industry is going and the fact that we're able to get away from that in certain ways by saying if we have a higher value product, and I'm using the word product loosely, it doesn't necessarily mean a health insurance product. If we have a higher value product, there is a way for that higher value product to win market share. Because that's what should happen. Again, in, in any other industry, that's what we would expect. Um, so, so that is, uh, you know, that's kind of, again, the, the general idea of how this fits in. When we start looking at how do we partner differently to make that happen, the other uh, you know, kind of core thesis we have is that healthcare is, again, one of the, it's one of the only industries, probably the only industry, where the typical model is, you take all the piece parts of the supply chain, uh, you know, kind of throw them in front of the customer and say, you put it together. Uh, in any other industry, if you did that, you'd be fired on the spot. And in healthcare, we do that all the time. That's completely normative. Uh, the, the health plan dumps their stuff in front of the, the customer or the consumer. Um, the provider does that. The pharmacy does that. The drug company does that. And if they can't sort it out, you kind of look at them and say, well, you know, they're an idiot. Why didn't they call the right number? They're complaining about service. Didn't they know this is, this is a health plan problem? Didn't they know that, you know, even happens within the organization, the number of times that people will say, oh, well, you know, they couldn't get appointment. They, they didn't know they were calling the wrong number. Oh, come on. And then you kind of like roll your eyes at them. Why are we doing that? Right. I mean, we, we need to actually say, actually, it's our problem. We need to organize the supply chain. And so we find that we can organize the supply chain the better, better the more of the supply chain providers that are in it. And if, again, if you can set aside the, the organizational ego and say, between the health plan and the health system and the physician network, we have a bunch of the pieces of the supply chain. Let's stitch it all together, make it seamless, make coordinating it our problem, use that to increase value, uh, then we should have a product that we can actually sell that, that hunts, that hunts in the market, that drives market share for both us and for, uh, you know, whoever our partners are. And, and again, that's what we're seeing, not, not only with these kind of co-branded insurance products, but also with what we're doing, uh, you know, around specialty care models that we've partnered with employers on, uh, worksite clinics, anything where we're taking what we have to offer directly to the purchaser. Uh, we're time and time again, finding that, if we deliver on the value, which, which we haven't 100% of the time, but if we deliver on the value, we are rewarded uh, through, you know, through inc increased market share of lives or, or whatever other metric it is. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and at an organizational level, Neam, that makes great sense. How do, you, how do you change the culture inside or how have you worked to change the culture inside Mount Sinai so that uh, individual people who spend time with patients and, and consumers um, really act like they own things that they may not be responsible for? Uh, very carefully. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um, you, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. Actually, what an uh, I probably can't answer that question uh, phrased in the past tense because we haven't, you know, changed all the culture that we need to change. But the the work that we are doing to change the culture 
um, I'm finding is actually increasingly uh, the, the schizophrenia that occurs is through the layers of the organization. And so, so an example here is uh, what we've done around primary care compensation. So uh, we, uh, I think, correctly identified that unless we changed primary care compensation pretty dramatically, uh, we wouldn't really be able to drive forward in some of what we want to do around taking risk for populations. And so we're at a point now where, uh, depending on the practice, anywhere between 65 to 80% of the patients that receive their primary care there uh, are in some sort of risk model with us. And that ranges from, you know, we have a bunch of them in full risk, percent of premium, and some of them in, you know, some of the stair steps on the way there, uh, but all moving towards greater and greater risk. And so we're at that tipping point. If you're a primary care physician with 2,000 patients, uh, you know, the vast majority of them, we bear total cost of care risk uh, in some way for those patients. Well, then we need to actually make that translate down to the primary care physicians. So we said, okay, great, let's, let's get rid of the RVU. And so we're doing that. Um, and we've, you know, gone through a multi-year transition and we're going into the next year of it here where we're basically, the RVU is going away for them. Um, and their productivity measure is risk-adjusted panel size, and then there's a big value component around total cost of care and efficiency and ED utilization and quality. Great. Um, and then, you know, I think rather naively, as we embarked upon that journey, we thought that that would be, you know, that would be the way to do it, and we'd be in, in good shape. And then we realized that, you know, actually, the primary care practices, if you think about it at the practice administrator level, have a P&L, and it, the P&L of that practice or the P&L of that department isn't necessarily aligned. And so we had a situation actually for a brief point in time where the physician incentives were aligned with the organizational incentives. And that's fascinating. And so actually we're going through this whole process of restructuring the P&L for our primary care enterprise to create a end-to-end P&L across the fee-for-service and the risk-based parts of it uh, so that we have the right incentives for you know, kind of middle management. It's not like middle management's compensated on this, uh, but it's the metric they're held accountable for. Um, and so it's, it's crazy to think that we're going to change behavior by compensating the people on the ground differently, taking risk at the organizational level, but, you know, measuring middle management on the wrong set of metrics. Right. Well, yeah, my, I, think that the system will be a better place when you get this figured out for all of us. Um, let, me, let me ask you my last question. It's the question we ask all our guests. If you had all the time, money, talent, space in the world, uh, and you could do anything to fix healthcare, what's the one thing you would do? You know, the, the thing that always comes to mind for me, if I had all the resources in the world, is I would build from scratch. I think we need to purpose build using kind of a design thinking approach for the outcomes that we want. Um, and, you know, I probably start in a geography. Um, again, if I had all the time, money, and probably political capital in the world, uh, pick up all of the assets, tear them all apart, uh, and, and really build a consumer-focused healthcare model focused on value, however we decided to define value, and make sure that every piece of what we build from scratch is oriented towards delivering that value. Uh, because I think right now we have, there's just too much in the industry. There's too much in the bureaucracy between players in the industry uh, that doesn't add value. 
uh, and I, I, it's almost like the, uh, it's the, uh, development version of zero-based budgeting. I would, I would zero-based budget the entire healthcare system and start from scratch uh, with with a white sheet of paper uh, because I think we could, that's that's the way we could really unlock the value that that the people deserve. Niam, I think you may have to be the CEO of the first Martian healthcare authority, uh, and we'll let you we'll let you have a shot at it. Niam Gandhi, uh, it's been great chatting. Thank you for for joining us. Uh, congratulations on all the progress at Mount Sinai, and uh, look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We also invite you to subscribe to the Oliver Wyman Health community on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This way, you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.